Hi, everybody. This is Kevin O'Donohue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And this is The Positive Mind. Where we bring you some ideas, concepts, and guests to help you lead a more positively-minded life. And what could be more positive than having good parents and good parenting? Did you have good parenting? Are you a good parent? What does it take to make a good parent? Well, my guests today have been pioneer researchers in the science, what's called the science of attachment. Are you attached to your children? Are they attached to you? How does a parent or a child feel attached to their children? Well, this is a very important thing to study. And my my guests today, Howard and Miriam Steele, have co-authored over, over 100 journal articles and book chapters on what's called the science of attachment theory. Howard is a professor and chair for clinical psychology in the psychology department at the New School for Social Research here in Manhattan. And Miriam is an Anna Freud Center trained psychoanalyst and professor among the child psychology faculty at the New School for Social Research. They are also co-directors of the Center for Attachment Research. The Steele's research has provided a rich understanding of the science of attachment, and we are privileged and pleased to have them both here as our guests on The Positive Mind. Welcome, Howard and Miriam. Uh, Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. It's called the science of attachment. Can you talk to our audience briefly about the importance of your work, what the science of attachment means, and the various forms of attachment? Sure. Uh, Thank you for this question. The science of attachment began 70 years ago or more in the work of the British psychoanalyst and British psychiatrist, John Bowlby. John Bowlby argued that what is essential for the mental health of the infant, later the child, later the adolescent and adult, what is essential for the human individual early in life is to have a more or less continuous relationship with a caregiver, usually the mother, maybe the father, maybe an adoptive parent, a more or less continuous relationship where parent and child derive an enduring sense of joy. And there has been systematic research on this concept for 70 years. Dr. Miriam Steele and myself and many others in the field have contributed to a toolbox of attachment measures. So we know what emotional and mental health looks like in a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old at every age across the lifespan with tools that measure that. That's the science of attachment. But I'll say one other thing about the science of attachment, that attachment theory is a dominant model, not only in developmental psychology, clinical psychology, psychiatry, but also in social psychology, nursing professions, and a wide range of counseling and mental health professions. Miriam, welcome. You've done a lot of work with adoption. In your article, Forecasting Outcomes in Previously Maltreated Children, You talk about adoption as probably the most significant intervention for a maltreated child. Um, Can you talk about 
attachment in connection with adoption? I mean, how does an infant or even a late toddler become attached to their new parents? I think the adoption context is quite unique um, in that it offers us an opportunity to study the development of attachment relationships in two non-biologically linked individuals. Um, And so what we were looking to do in that study was to try and chart what does it mean for a child who's uh, suffered from uh, tremendous adversity in terms of maltreatment. So this was um, emotional abuse, neglect, some sexual abuse amongst this uh, group of children. And to really to be able to, um, from the very beginning of this new relationship, chart uh, what that could look like. What, what, what are some of the ingredients that go into those rather complex relationships? All relationships are complex, but the adoption context has um, very unique complexities, which a lot of um, individuals, social workers, clinicians, even don't quite um, understand the unique complexities of those relationships. So in the adoption context, these are children who um, take with them issues around identity, um, issues around having not had sensitive and responsive caregiving. And the mere fact that that child knows the biological parent couldn't manage, couldn't take care of them and uh, put them up for adoption or gave them away. And that's an interesting piece around um, some of what the adoption, uh, adopted children carry with them. When you put those children together, especially with parents who are securely attached on our empirical measures, we were able to discern those children do um, better than children who are placed with uh, parents who are insecurely attached. There are many uh, of the adoptive parents who carry with them trauma, but within our attachment framework, we have an understanding that it's not just that they experienced the trauma, but that they came to terms with those experiences. And individuals such as those who take on this challenge of taking on a child who's been previously maltreated and adopted can form such important relationships with the children. The child's internal world can change as a result of being in this new relationship. So that's where we come to understand the power of adoption as being the most dramatic of all interventions we have access to. Does it matter if the child is adopted, let's say, at age three versus age one in terms of changing from a, let's say, disorganized attachment to an organized or a secure, rather, attachment? Um, I think one of the most powerful studies that we know about are is the group of studies that was um, charted by Michael Rudder in the United Kingdom and then had colleagues um, here, including uh, Charlie uh, Zena um, and others looking at children who were in Romanian orphanages, so high levels of deprivation. But they were able to then compare the children who were adopted within the first, say, 20 months of their lives versus older. And quite dramatic differences um, happen. So the name of the game in attachment is the earlier the better, whether that's an adoption context or intervention, um, that the earlier the better. But that at no point, it was one of um, Bowlby's um, strongest convictions, that at no point in life are we impermeable. Can we not change with the change in the environment or especially the caregiving context? You must have seen some really beautiful examples, I mean, through the years of children that went from really a disorganized, insecure attachment to a secure, loving environment. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, Yeah, so the study was looking at um, this group of adopters. Uh, They were uh, parents who had been approved to adopt a child. And we did the, we conducted the adult attachment interview 
um, before the children were adopted. And then once uh, the adoption took place or they were united with a child, we did a series of studies looking at capacities of the child's internal world, uh, which we measure by something called story stems. You show the child the beginning and middle of a story, and then you ask them to show me and tell me what happens next. So it's using what children do, uh, play, for example, and expressing some of their most deepest, innermost thoughts and ideas and feelings around attachment in that context. And the first time that we... uh, assess the children was within the first six weeks of the placement. Um, And it was a bit of analysis I was even reluctant to do, thinking there's just no way that the parents' um, adult attachment interview or their own uh, state of mind with regard to attachment could influence um, this child who they were only just now getting to know. And lo and behold, what we found was that even then, so very quickly, the child has a sense um, of that they're with someone now who is uh, responsive to their needs, sensitive to their needs, um, and we saw differences. Um, the most remarkable differences came one year and two years later, where we could then chart each individual child's internal world um, from where they started to where they ended up one and two years later, and then tremendously uh, dramatic uh, changes uh, that we could chart. Howard, could you thank you so much for that? Could you, Howard, paint a picture? of a secure versus an insecure attachment. These are really the only two options, right? A secure uh, attachment to a parental figure or an insecure attachment. Could you paint a picture for our audience what this looks like? Sure. And these are the two um, primary options, we should say. When children are overwhelmed with fear, uh, that adds an extra dimension we can talk about. But for the secure and insecure distinction, it's, it's really straightforward. The securely attached child is the child who, when he or she is distressed, has only one question in mind. Where's the parent? Where's the caregiver? Where's mother? Where's father? Where's grandmother? Where, where are they? And that child who's distressed freely shares their distress with the parent, knowing that the parent will help solve the problem. Of course, with older children and adolescents, the parent is not gonna immediately solve the problem, but they'll engage in a discussion about how to approach it. For the insecurely attached child, they have more than one question in mind. They have at least two questions in mind. Where's the parent and what's going on for them? What's, What's their state of mind? Because sometimes they're there for me. All parents love their children. We have no question about that. All parents are in some ways good, as you mentioned, and with the start of the discussion. The question is whether they can be consistently good enough. And if so, the child will know that and be confident that seeking them out solves the problem. But an insecurely attached child has to worry about the state of mind of the parent because they sometimes are unavailable. Sometimes maybe they're frightening and the child is not going to want to put themselves in a frightening situation. So they're going to have lots of questions. And we, our human and other animals, are limited in terms of our attention and emotions. So if attention has to be given up with wondering what's going on for the parent, how do I protect myself? 
when the security attached child has an automatic sense from thousands of interactions that he or she is protected, that they're protected. And going to the parent is the, the right thing to do. It may not be the right thing for other children who we call insecurely attached. So the dilemma is that a parent might be insecurely attached. And so an insecurely attached parent would kind of be, um, what, um, not as good at parenting or, you know, inconsistent with uh, an insecurely attached child? I mean, what are the measures of an insecure attachment? Well, it might be helpful to remember um, that John Bowlby's first paper back in 1949 is considered as the first family therapy paper. The title is along the lines of reducing tensions in the family. And in that short paper in 1949, Bowlby said there's untold rewards for the helping professional wanting to help a parent and child to interview the parent about the parent's family background to get their story because parents are doing the best they can. But often the best they can is hampered by the complexity of their history, the worries, the fears, the defenses that they have in place that they've used those defenses to cope with adversity in their past. And that adversity may impinge upon them at a level beneath the level of awareness, but the child will sense it and that will be passed on to the child. So we talk about intergenerational patterns of attachment, security leading to, in the parent leading to security in the child, insecurities in the parent leading to insecurities in the child. Right. Um, and so you've pioneered this this intervention, and you've you're both the editors of this book, the Handbook of Attachment Interventions, that talk about a variety of techniques and and workshops and and, and just ideas on how to improve attachment and possibly help insecurely attached parents transition from insecure to secure attachment. Thank, thank you for that question. I'll, I'll say a few words, and I'm sure um, my colleague, Dr. Miriam Stu, will come in. That uh, Handbook of Attachment-Based Interventions, which came out in 2018, has 21 chapters. But three-quarters of the chapters are on therapeutic interventions aimed at parents of children zero to three years of age. So going with our earlier conversation, intervening early offers so many opportunities. And those 15 or more chapters about early interventions in the early years share three things. Helping parents to be um, synchronous with their children, to increase synchrony. Now, what do we mean by that? We mean, if you're synchronous with the other person, you're, you're following the other person. In this case, this young child, follow the child. Where is their curiosity? Where are they going to? Now, if they're going toward an open fire, we're going to want to restrain them um, and, and signal danger to be avoided. That's about synchrony. The second piece is sensitivity. Sensitivity to distress. 
Remember, I said that the securely attached child, when distressed, knows the parent will be there for them because they've had hundreds and thousands of experiences of prompt responsiveness to distress. Leaving a child to cry has no place in the attachment model or lexicon. A crying child should be attended to, to find out what the, what the problem is. Is the child hungry? Is the child hurt? Is the child tired? It's the parent's job to figure that out and figure it out promptly. And thirdly, all of those interventions stress the damaging effects of acute, uncontrolled fear. Children do not benefit from being frightened. Not physiologically, it's unsettling to the immune system. And psychologically, it's very damaging if a child feels afraid of the person who loves them most in the world. So we, we help parents to learn uh, a range of strategies for supporting their children and uh, protecting them and helping the child and the parent thrive. Yeah, I, um, I was struck by one of the uh, modalities you use in this uh, group. Group attachment-based intervention. You use video to help a parent see how they are engaging with their child in a variety of settings. Can you talk a little bit about that innovation and how successful that might be? Yes, actually, in, in, that, in our handbook of attachment-based uh, interventions, the use of video is, is rather prominent, and many of our most powerful interventions use video. Uh, video has been around for a long time. Um, there's a famous uh, quote, uh, Alger and Hogan, 1964, who um, put forward that perhaps the use of video is as important to clinical work as the microscope was uh, to biology. Um, and now we are in a situation where it's readily available. Um, every, most people have a phone, um, you know, that we can capture uh, different images. And there are some powerful components to watching yourself on video in interaction, say, for example, with your child. Um, first of all, you and the clinician, and in our context, the, the others in the group attachment-based intervention, are kind of on the same playing field in that you're all of you or both of you uh, clinician and parent watching in real time this segment of video. It's very hard to watch that video without somewhere engaging what we call reflective functioning. That is the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and think about the thoughts, intentions, and feelings that they had in terms of why they're behaving in the way that they are. So by presenting someone with um, images of themselves in interaction with their child, it promotes that capacity, and it allows you to then do what you can't do in real life, which is to stop, to watch, to think about, to put into words the feeling states that you're watching, and then also to think, what could have been done differently here? How else could I have responded? And that working through, I think, is where we get a mechanism of therapeutic change. Um, and that's what we're after. And one of the interesting things in that book is, is, is thinking about what do all of the chapters have in common? in terms of wishing to promote attachment, wishing to promote responsive and sensitive caregiving, and how do they do that? And all of them, I think, have some um, somewhere in common this capacity to have people reflect on their behaviors, on their states of mind, 
and think about how those might impact the children that they're with. Just one other thing about that um, handbook is that um, it's very hopeful, right? It is a hopeful book. Yes, a, it that is. we've come to the point um, that, you know, as Howard said, the vast majority of the interventions are now geared towards the youngest ages. Goes back to your question around or comment around adoption, right? We know earlier is better. Well, certainly in, in the intervention field, earlier is also better. Um, so you want to give these uh, babies and toddlers and young children the best possible chance, and that is to change the trajectory of the caregiving context so that it includes more sensitive um, and responsive caregiving. I, I wanted to circle back just a little bit uh, to this this what Howard said about fear and that the child shouldn't be living in fear. And I'm recalling from one of your articles a a phrase to help parents not be afraid of their children and children not afraid of their parents. I mean, I, it just made so much sense to me because there's a lot of fear and shame. And I can imagine with the video process that you can also start to mitigate the immediate shame that I think a parent probably feels and tries to hide, tries to manage around, oh, I did that wrong, or I couldn't have, you know, I could have done that better. And I know parents have mostly really want to do the best for their children, but they just don't know how. And they're probably, frankly, I think most new parents are completely terrified of their child on some level. And and the child might be a little afraid too. So I just want to throw that in there. I don't know. It just really struck me about, you know, there's, there's having to sort of mitigate the shame and sort of combat that with skills and curiosity. So that quote, um, you know, very much is uh, was generated, initiated by Mary Main. And so that's the emphasis of the work of uh, that she did observing babies who didn't fit into the regular typical patterns that Mary Ainsworth delineated, the secure, the avoidant and the ambivalent resistant. And so with the children who get classified as disorganized. So we try and make a big point of not calling the child disorganized, but just that in our assessment tools, their classification was one um, in which disorganized attachment was prevalent. The the one affect that stands out is fear, right? So these are children who um, don't have that caregiver to turn to in the way that Howard was describing. When distressed, they're on their own, right? And at 12 months, there's a limited repertoire of behaviors that you can engage as a way of dealing with um, tremendous, overwhelming fear and nowhere to turn to. And so they do in these contexts odd things. They freeze, right? It's, it's, it's one of the um, capacities within our human species when overwhelmingly afraid to freeze. Or they do things like um, the parent comes back into the room after the strain situation and they make a motion to leave the room. Uh, it doesn't really make very much sense because if you need that person who is bigger, wiser, older than you to protect you, moving away from them or removing the possibility even for protection doesn't make quite sense. But it's the best adaptation that these children have been able to put together. So so their strategies um, don't work as well as they do, say, with the securely attached and even the insecurely attached. This is a, a different dimension. So I think one of the things we want to emphasize is um, the perniciousness, how, how um, what it does to the child to be living in that fearful situation and for some of these parents, they can't help it, right? So the, the, the aggression that comes out, the shouting, the withdrawal of affection, all of those generate fear in the child. And so that's one of the places I think most people can understand um, 
is not a good set of behaviors and how to change them. Just one other context around yeah. the use of video, that because we um, present the video in these uh, parent group settings, it allows some of the other parents to think about their own parenting in a way that perhaps is a little bit less intense than, say, the target um, parent and child. And so there's a lot of support that they often give each other. Um, and I think that's what, one of the ways in which the group context is so powerful. Some other parents saying, no, 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 I think you did a good job there, you know, um, versus, you know, one of the parents turning to another one and said, what did that look like to you? Um, and we have so many incredible examples of the power of the group. Peers, people in a situation very similar to them, um, helping them out and processing some of the difficulties. I taught high school myself for five years, and I used to walk past the classrooms of other teachers and see the kids' heads on the desk. Half the children's heads were on the desk, and I thought, we should be videotaping our teachers because, you know, to see yourself on film uh, and, you know, highlight your positive qualities and then your negatives would definitely change the culture of every – certainly high school, but I would think every school in our country, I think every teacher – should be required to be videotaped at least three times a year. But I, what I like, go ahead uh, if you have a comment, but I, what I like about your you know, innovation and your intervention is that you have mothers talking to each other, not critically about what they're doing well, what looked right, what looked nurturing, what, you know, these varieties. And, they, and teachers, I think in our schools, don't really have that with each other. Frankly, it didn't, wasn't part of my experience with other teachers. We were really afraid of each other and afraid that we were all doing it wrong. So um, I think this idea of video feedback is so critical, so important. Um, and thank God, you know, thankfully, children, young children are benefiting from it. Um, could you talk more about this, the types of the types of interactions these mothers would have? I know you, you've pioneered this program in the Bronx here in New York. Um, we did um, indeed pioneer the program in the Bronx in New York. Your comments um, must be addressed, though. Um, teachers are videotaping themselves with the support of professionals in the field, but that effort was led by an attachment researcher. Oh, wow. Um, uh, someone named uh, Pianta, Professor Pianta at the University of Virginia. And uh, Pianta has an intervention in schools where teachers are empowered to collect videos of themselves, review the video on their own, discuss it with the, the team that they've uploaded the video to a website, and to become a better teacher as a result. So uh, the education field can benefit further from this, but uh, that's maybe a topic for another yes, um, of course. interview that you might do. Uh, and then uh, with regard to um, the group attachment-based intervention, uh, we video film everything. And I think I'll let Miriam talk about that. Okay. We even videotape ourselves watching videos of videos. Um, as a, as a way of understanding, but it was, you know, it was a tremendous boost to us with our colleague um, Anne Murphy, who really pioneered this group attachment-based um, intervention. Is that she was very open uh, to being videoed, right? So this is you know somewhere around 15, 16 years ago, um, and that takes a lot of courage uh, to allow yourself to be videoed, to be studied, yes. 
you know, why did you say this? Why, you know, uh, watching movement. Um, we spend a lot of time looking at both what people say and then in their bodies, how their nonverbal communication gets expressed. Um, so some of the power of, of the video, we have so many examples. One of them um, was, and the power of video is, is remarkable in that you don't even need to show someone um, non-optimal behavior. Any glimpse of video, we've never had an occasion where we've shown someone a video and it hasn't um, promoted some deep reflection on them. So one of our first examples was of a mother and child who were participating in this group attachment-based intervention, um, which began out uh, uh, in, within the Department of Montefiore Hospital, but is now um, under the auspices of the Administration of Children's Services in New York, ACS, and it's currently being run in eight different uh, neighborhoods across uh, every single borough of New York City. Um, and I think uh, in some ways what attracted them was the complexity of the model, that there are these different components to it, but especially the group model made a lot of sense uh, to people um, where we're you know, trying to help individual families who are facing really dramatic social isolation um, and ongoing trauma in terms of neighborhood conflict, domestic violence, uh, living in poverty, um, as they do across our city. So the power of the video, uh, one of the examples was of a mother and child um, playing together, and the clinician um, doesn't say anything, but brings over a baby doll uh, to the child. Um, and the child kind of looks wide-eyed, and at some point the clinician comes and brings a little bit of a blanket um, and has the mother then engage with her child uh, with this baby doll and putting the blanket around. The mother was then shown that bit of video. It was, you know, all of 60 seconds, um, and asked, what do you see? Um, and um, at first she is somewhat startled that we captured some video, right? These are families who have a lot to fear from the Administration for Children's Services or authority figures in terms of, you know, are they here to benefit me or are they uh, here to remove my child, right? There's a lot of experiences um, that way. So the first bit of startle was around um, that we captured this video. And then at some point, um, the clinician Ann Murphy asks this mother, what, what do you see? And she said, well, you know, I see a mother looking after her child. Um, and she turns to one of the other mothers and, and says, you know, is that what it looks like? And she goes, yeah, I see, you know, you're doing a great job here. Um, you really look like uh, you're taking really good care. And she's like, turns, the mother turns and just says, I'm so glad you showed me this video. Mm -hmm. Because to see me now from the outside, I'm always judging myself from the inside. Mm -hmm. But to see me from the outside, being that kind of mother and to show that and to see that I still have those motherly instincts is what she mm. says, um, is, 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 is really powerful. And I never would have seen it had you not show me that video. So we just feel like we luck out every single time with whatever video we show that it produces this kind of dramatic uh, therapeutic effect of be people being able to see themselves um, in a light that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. Wow, what a lovely story. A beautiful story. Well, we're, we're going to take our break. We're here with Howard and Miriam Steele, pioneers in the science of attachment 
and editors of this book, this wonderful book of hope, and I do agree because I've read the whole book, and uh, it's the Handbook of Attachment-Based Interventions. We're going to come back and talk a little bit about attachment theory uh, compared to the development of psychology in general, speaking of Sigmund Freud, et cetera, and how John Bowlby started all off with this sort of optimistic view of human nature. So I'm Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And we'll be right back. Okay, we're back with The Positive Mind. I'm Kevin O'Donoghue. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer. And we are here with Howard and Miriam Steele, editors of the Handbook of Attachment-Based Interventions. You know, we're so privileged to have you and so grateful for you to be here. I, because, you know, I'm a student of psychology, and, and you can't help but read this book and read attachment theory in general and sort of have hope for humanity and hope for for human development. I mean, sometimes reading psychology can be pretty dark. Um, but attachment theory and the success, you know, that uh, you're not condemned because of your childhood um, and that there's ways to reverse some of the the attachment injuries in childhood, whereas, you know, Sigmund Freud and others would make you believe that your destiny, your childhood is your destiny, so, uh, Howard, I wonder, you know, this article that you wrote on a rereading of Psychoanalysis in Childhood by John Bowlby, if you could comment a little bit on Bowlby's sort of optimistic view of human nature and attachment theory in general as an optimistic view of human nature. Sure. Thank you, uh, Kevin. That uh, piece of writing that you refer to uh, was a lecture that John Bowlby gave in 1956 on the 100th anniversary of Sigmund Freud's birth. And he gave that uh, to the British Psychoanalytic Society that he belonged to at the time. And briefly, Bowlby would say, told Miriam and I, we had the good fortune of knowing him and his family in the years between 1986 and 1990, when um, John um passed away, 1990, at the age of 83. Uh, said, I follow Freud, but not much beyond 1900. <laughs> I, I follow Freud, but not much beyond 1900. Right. And what he was referring to with that comment is, is the long life of Freud and the many different ideas that Freud had. But in the 1890s, Freud held to a view that personality develops, the self develops out of interactions with the caregiving environment. And the caregiving environment should be careful not to overwhelm the child with information or stress 
that is beyond the child's ability to deal with because that could lead to long-term problems. That's the model of attachment theory. It's there in a nutshell that the context in which the child lives, provided in part by the biological makeup of the child, and we know that there's great diversity in the biological makeup of children. Some have developmental delay, some develop autism, some develop cerebral palsy, some live with um, health problems. But there are now meta-analytic reports on what contributes more to the child's well-being, characteristics of the child or characteristics of the parents. And it's characteristics of the parents by a factor of two to one, three to one, that matter more than anything going on in the child. So parents who accept that responsibility and accept that they are doing the best that they can do. Maybe they'll um, find support from peers, from counselors, from psychologists, maybe, maybe from their own parents. Uh, and, And they will be able to help their children, whatever the difficulties children are dealing with, help them cope and thrive. Uh, so um, Bowlby was aware of this, and this is what he's talking about in that 1956 lecture. And uh, Bowlby, it's important to say, was heavily influenced by Darwin, who wrote a book in 1897 on emotions in man and other animals, or humans and other animals, arguing that there are six basic emotions, joy, anger, sadness, surprise, fear, and disgust. Children experience these over the first year of their life. Fear doesn't kick in until about eight or nine or 10 months of age when children are crawling and capable of moving far away from the parents and getting into danger. It's adaptive for a child to feel fear and to signal to the parent that they're afraid. And it's the parent's job, of course, to help them feel safe and to teach them what to be afraid of and who to turn to to cope with those fears. With those words I threw out there, there's positive and negative emotion. Emotion animates and motivates our human species. And we're healthier for being able to acknowledge our emotions, the full range of them, and share our emotions with others who can help us to make sense of our experiences cope and thrive. The attachment argument is that we are dependent on others from the cradle to the grave. So any parents listening to this who hold as a value that they should be independent or their children should be independent, it's a radical change, but that should not be your most important goal. Your most important goal is to acknowledge that we are dependent on others, that my children are dependent on me. My children are now young adults. I depend on them in some ways, but hopefully they know that they can still depend on me. Miriam, in your article, you talk about good parenting as 
Uh, the article being forecasting outcomes in previously maltreated children, which is largely um, an article about uh, adoption and adoptees, that um, the capacity for the parent to be able to experience the entire range of their child's emotions, the positives and the negatives. I mean, it just jumped off the page at me. How often are parents paying attention to the emotions and helping the child name the emotion of their children. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Because I started the show by saying good parenting, and it struck me good parenting has to be not just witnessing and seeing your child, but knowing what they're feeling and letting them feel it and reacting and responding to that. Absolutely. So I think that you know one of the hallmarks of the attachment approach uh, which is to integrate research into clinical work and the other way around, um, is flexibility with one's own emotional life. And that means at times uh, reflecting on, I'm feeling angry right now, right? So the parent who can do that and perhaps uh, take themselves away from a very volatile situation is going to be a lot better off than the parent who has very little idea that that's how they're feeling and will strike out at the child, yes. either verbally or, or in behavior. And, and the same is true for, you know, watching your children and trying to put yourself in their shoes and think about, you know, how they might be feeling and thinking at any uh, point in time. And the parents who are able to do that, um, and in the adoption context, there's a lot of unknowns, right? There's a lot of parts of the history of a child that they weren't present for. And so the challenge is really great. Um, they're also, in, in the case of that study, looking at older children, right? They're four through eight years of age, which is really old in terms of having a new um, set of parents yeah. to attune to and have them attuned to you. Um, and so that even there, you know, the parent who can um, build the tiny little building blocks of what it means to have a relationship with someone you share some experiences together and to comment on those, to put those into words, facilitates um, attachment in a way that the parent who has burdens of their own from their own attachment history forecloses on those possibilities and perhaps, you know, can go into a dissociative, dissociative state themselves or deny or dismiss the child's especially negative affect. They're fine if the kid is, you know, um, pleasing and happy and yeah. uh, content not so, not so easy when the child is displaying uh, levels of aggression or rejection of the parent. Yes. And so experiencing those negative emotions and adapting to them and not being ashamed of how you're reacting to them, but just to tolerate them is really um, courageous and noteworthy for parents. We're, we're often seeing parents react negatively to their child's negative emotions. It's really quite something to watch a parent hang in there with a child and their negative emotions and how important that is in the formative, really young, young years. Um, yes. So uh, I thought that was a really important point in your article. What about parents who want to become better parents? Let's say you think there's this thing, the adult attachment interview. Is that open for anybody to take and assess themselves or would you go to a professional to assess and what you can learn from it if you really want to change your parenting. Um, so at this point in time, it's not so readily available. It takes a significant amount of training 
um, in order to, not so much the administration, but in order to understand uh, the narratives that you collect in that kind of context. Howard and I um, happen to be uh, part of a group uh, that's part of a consortium of adult attachment interview trainers. Um, and we'll be holding an institute this um, summer for uh, for on Zoom. So it means for people all around the world who will be... Um, I'm in. I'm in. You're in. You're in. I think it's a very powerful tool to use in clinical work. And there are many, many examples of clinicians who use it as part of their intake. Uh, because the power that it gives you, if you use the AI for an intake, um, you are automatically then able to think about this person's responses in comparison to the tens of thousands of AIs that have been collected out there and have some sense of where this person might fit in in terms of what are their habitual modes of defense, of ways of dealing with painful um, experiences. Um, what are their strategies? Just like we're looking at the one-year-old in terms of the strain situation, what are their strategies to get back to the parent? Or have they foreclosed on some of that uh, connection by um, putting mo more of the focus on themselves in, in that way? So the AI is, is, in, is incredibly powerful. I work with a, a colleague, for example, um, again in the adoption context, uh, Karen Buckwalter, who is affiliated with the Chaddock uh, Treatment Center for Children with Attachment Disorders. And uh, I helped convince Karen to use the AI at intake. And then um, once a month, I then go back to the therapist in the group and we go through the AI line by line, looking for glimmers of reflective functioning or places that we think the therapeutic work could take off yeah. that we learned in the AI that we wouldn't have known otherwise. Right. And so a sample question in your article would, I think to Mr. Drew or Mrs. Drew was about what, what, um, how did you react when you were distressed as a child? That would be something you ask an adult and ask, how were you when things went, went wrong as, as a child? How, how were you when mom was angry? Would that be a question that would be on the adult attachment exactly. interview? Exactly. It's, it, it's one of the questions in the adult attachment interview that are meant to surprise the unconscious, right? The question goes something like, um, when you were upset as a child, what would you do? We're not used to answering these questions, no. even, you know, the families who've been through, you know, years of study before they were able to adopt a child. It, it doesn't come up. And so we're asking, um, do you have a memory? Do you have an incident that comes to mind that reflects what happened when you're upset? Or do you tend to say, no, nope, never got upset as a child? Right. Well, we know that that's not true, right? Every child has upsets. Sure. Um, do you have access to a memory? that can be coherently um, explored and expressed that the interviewer will then understand what you're getting at. And we should say that not having access to childhood memories is a sign of something, uh, the kind of attachment you might have had as a child. So all of these That's questions right. are really, really like very eye-opening um, and really, really useful and helpful. Um, but uh, Howard, I wanted to return to uh, the group-based intervention and talk about training. Since you're now in eight, eight locations here in New York City, the five boroughs, are you expanding out and how are you training people to um, you know, run these kinds of groups and these interventions? Uh, well, uh, certainly we're involved in training. In the first place, the training is training the staff 
delivering the intervention across the five boroughs. And our colleague, Dr. Ann Murphy, uh, takes the lead in that with Miriam Steele. So I would defer to Miriam in saying more about uh, training, uh, but we have a um, password protected website with lots of videos. We've talked about the importance of video, seeing is believing. Hearing is also believing. Uh, we're yes. all invested in that, um, in, in these conversations. Uh, but um, there is a, a mechanism for uh, training people to deliver the group attachment-based intervention. And um, Miriam can say more about that. It's um, a complex intervention to deliver because it has many of these different components, as well as the families um, come with many different complex challenges that they face. But for the most part, we're really trying to get the clinicians to think about promoting reflective functioning, paying attention to aspects of emotional attunement between themselves, between the parent and child. We're looking for aspects of affect regulation. Can they um, help the parent to um, either upregulate, right? So if you get a depressed parent who needs to perhaps be encouraged to be more present with their child or downregulate uh, to try and shift the fearful um, ways in which they're displaying their behaviors to their child. Uh, one of the central focuses, foci, is around reticence, being present in an active way, but allowing the relationship to unfold without being intrusive or interfering. Um, and then we have you know, uh, an emphasis on nurturing the, the parent so that they can nurture the child. Um, we want to promote the parent side of the equation and not come in as the expert players that most clinicians are able to do, but to really let the relationship unfold. And then the power of the group context, um, you know, what it means for these families to be coming together, what it means even for the infants to be relating to one another um, under the the eyes or the careful watch of the clinicians. So I wanted to find out, like, this show is going to be listened to in many areas of the country and by many people around the world, potentially. How might people, if they want to incorporate some sort of program like this or learn how to administer a program like this, how would they get in touch with you? So they're very welcome to get in touch um, with us. At this point in time, uh, we aren't necessarily training vast numbers. We're trying to consolidate uh, the intervention per se. Um, but there are various trainings. Howard does trainings on reflective functioning and on some of the assessment tools that I think are both very valuable for research, but also within uh, clinical contexts. Um, so at this point in time, um, we tend to give a lot of talks, or we used to before COVID um, hit, or we do on, on Zoom. Um, so there's a, there's a lot that we can generate that I think is very valuable, um, both for the individual who's thinking about starting a Gabby-type um, intervention, but also people working with um, other groups of parents and infants, parents and children um, that can learn. When are you going to be on Oprah? <laughs> The, the last couple that was interviewed on Oprah didn't perhaps go so very well for them. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Look, this should be on mainstream television every day, a video of a mother <laughs> or a father, which we haven't talked about at all yet, uh, on videotape with their child showing, like, you know, hum humility, you know, the humility, the humility yes. of raising a child, of being a grown-up, raising humility. 
and learning, yeah. failing and, and, and the, succeeding, and the failing is and possible. succeeding. You know, I think that that's possible. one of the. Um, I think there was an earlier point that Howard was talking about John Bowlby. So, you know, one of his most formative experiences was working in um, a hostel. Uh, it was a a place that boys who got themselves into trouble ended up. And he there as a clinician still had hope for them. And what he'd learned was that it was one of the very first research studies, 1944. It's a brilliant paper called 44 Juvenile Thieves. And it was published oh, in 1944. Yes. Um, but he... he he is hopeful for those boys and that he understands it's where they came from, what their childhood experiences were like that led them to steal and to be aggressive to other people. But rather than going towards the negative, there was he was looking for the resilience in them. Um, and that's one of the main tenets of all these ideas is that change is always possible. And we know these um, juvenile behaviors as adverse childhood experiences nowadays that these would be labeled under, were you exposed to violence in your home? I mean, that's a game changer for a child. And and so the, what we would judge as criminal behavior might seem like natural survival behavior by certain people exposed to adverse childhood experiences. I wanted to talk, I know we don't have this time this week, I'd like to see if we can get you back on to talk about the social psychology aspects of attachment-based interventions, particularly your article on how do events and relationships in childhood set the stage for peace at personal and social levels. Your work has gone beyond just, you know, the child to the peaceful functioning of society and how societies can improve uh, along those Lines, and we're wondering um, if you'd be open to coming back and talk to, talking to us about that article um, and, you know, revisiting certain of the concepts we visited today. Is that possible? That's certainly possible. This was um, interesting and illuminating in many ways, talking among ourselves, and it will be good to do so again. We thank you. Thank you so much. We love your materials, um, and I want more of it. And, of course, I'm going to see if I can participate in that workshop over the summer. Uh, All right, you, good. You've been listening to Howard and Miriam Steele, pioneers for folks, and we'll, you'll get to meet them again next week. They're currently the editors of the Handbook of Attachment-Based Interventions. I recommend it. It is a book of hope. Um, and there's so many lessons to learn in there beyond and besides raising children. Um, we thank you again. I am Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Seema Diendemer. We would like to thank our affiliates, WBDY, WRWK, KAOS, KFOI, KPEJ, KXCR, KYGT, Global Community Radio at blogspot.com, GCR1. You can also find us on most podcast platforms, The Positive Mind. Thank you for your continued support. Also, we'd like to thank our producer, Connie Shannon, our chief engineer, Jeff Brady. You can contact us at tffpp.org with questions, comments, or suggestions for the show. Thanks for being with us, folks. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.